certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. 23 years ago today, March 14th, 1997, 27-year-old Kira Glennon went missing from Claremont and the worst fears of the public and police were confirmed. When Kira Glennon disappeared from Claremont in the early hours of that fateful Saturday morning, it confirmed what police had dreaded. We certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation and this special episode in which we remember a vibrant young lawyer whose life was taken. You're with Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Alison Fan. Let's talk about Kira and who she was. Well, Kira's disappearance um, was the one that hammered home to everybody that a serial killer was on the loose. It certainly spooked everybody in the neighbourhood who up until then were still carrying on, uh, going to the nightclubs, uh, going home alone, getting drunk and walking around the streets of Claremont. And John Sankin, who has been in the court quite regularly, said it was only when Kira Glennon disappeared that his business was totally affected. Up until then, and I know the mindset of kids at that age, uh, in their 20s, they're, they're invincible. And especially the mindset of the kids that go to Claremont, and I live in Claremont, they're very sheltered, they're very protected, and they really didn't take any notice of the... Um, it, it's, it's this what won't happen to me, but Kira Glennon brought it home. And of course, Kira um, had only been back in the country for two weeks. Uh, yeah, uh, less than that, and had only been back at work for a week. Nat, so she'd been um, she'd been travelling. Um, she was obviously ra- raised in Perth, educated in Perth, and, and and begun her legal career in Perth. But then took a year out to um, to go and uh, find herself, I suppose, a little bit, um, uh, and did what so many Australians and West Australians at that age and a little bit younger do. Um, pack their bags and go and see a bit of the world and uh, uh, you know and spread their wings um, and see what the world has to offer them um, but she she had returned um, for a couple of reasons one that she she she'd sated her wanderlust a little bit and two her daughter uh, her sister Denise was was just about to get married and so she was going to be the maid of honor she was going to be the guest of honor um, so it really was a family a, a time in the Glennon family which would, should have been um, memorable, joyous um, for all those reasons. Kira returning, Denise uh, getting married um, and, and, uh, and of course uh, the week um, that she'd returned to work um, being the social um, sort of person that she was and, and very popular um, her colleagues wanted to um, to celebrate with her on that Friday night, and it also coming up was St Patrick's Day, and we know Kira's family have uh, are Irish of of descent, and Kira was a very um, very proudly Irish and Celtic person, um, and so she um, she she wanted to do that, but um, towards the end of the evening on that Friday evening, she she wasn't really that keen. To carry it on, but was persuaded and cajoled into 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 going out with with some of her colleagues to Claremont, um, and uh, and that's what she did. Um, and yeah, the rest, uh, I suppose, is is a very very tragic history. 
Yeah, you heard in court from many of her colleagues and workmates and, and you heard the details about that evening and, and how they were having drinks and, and you know, she was um, encouraged to go with them. Can you just talk us through some of those witnesses and how they described that evening and how it unfolded? Well, mainly her boss, Neil mm. Ferris, is the one who dropped her off and he still comes to court quite regularly. He was there last week. Um, he was the one who agreed to drive them there. It was on his way home. It was on Kira's way home. She didn't particularly want to go. She was tired. They'd been drinking quite heavily all day, being St. Patrick's Day. She was just happy to go home because she had an early start the next morning. But like you do, you persuade them to come on just to drink. Come on, you you know, get together. And of course, that very, very fateful decision has lived with them forever. And, and these uh, young lawyers now, and of course, this is, they remember that they feel responsible for talking her into going down there. And they were very tearful when they were giving their evidence, very emotional. Um, because you know that if, if only, if only, in fact, one of the mm. witnesses said, oh, unfortunately, she agreed to come. They wished that she, you know, insisted on going home because she didn't stay very long. It wasn't a long night for her. And I don't think she was even continuing drinking from what we saw of the um, video. And it was just one of those terrible, terrible decisions. That's right. And I guess, like you, you're saying, the guilt that they must have carried for so very many years and just wishing, if only, she had said no. Again, there's just no indication. These are young lawyers. They're having fun. They're in a very safe neighbourhood, um, their local neighbourhood. It was probably the last thing in their mind that anything like this would happen. Mm. So, But again, they're living with it. And the overlap of cases as well. Um, Nat, we've talked about it all the way through the trial. The the, the similarities, the, the the echoes between all three w women who went missing. We heard from Sarah's friends about how uh, their sliding doors moments, how they wish they hadn't gone, or, or they wish they um, hadn't got let her go alone. And then with Jane, when when her her friends were literally over the road in a car, sort of imploring her to get in the car with her with them, and she didn't, and then they left her and. And then with Kira as well, the, the the decision to go out to the I mean, you know, but there's there's no blame attached to any of this, um, the those decisions. But um, with with the benefit of hindsight, of course, um, we think, oh, what if only? And I'm sure we know that they do because, as Ali said, um, um, a lot of the witnesses in Kira's case, even Mr. Ferris, her boss, um, said, you know, or or. or you know, pl plaintively sort of contemplated what might have been if if any one of a uh, you know a hundred tiny little decisions on that night had been different, whether whether Kira's um, whether Kira's fate would have been different. And once Kira did get to Claremont, talk us through what witnesses said in those next in the next hour. What happened in that hour that she arrived in Claremont? Well, they got separated a, a little bit, mm. and um, she just literally disappeared, vanished. Nobody could see her actually leaving. There was a shot of her walking down and that was that was it. And again, knowing the actual spot in the area, there are a couple of exits and entrances you could go through from the side doors, you could go through the front way. She didn't stay for very long. Uh, it wasn't a night out. She's, um, again, not disparaging the other victims. They were younger. Um, but here is a very street-smart young lawyer who's there that, and nobody could have envisaged anything like this happening. She, unfortunately, she was tired. She then walked down. We know she walked down towards Stirling Highway. 
the so-called living witnesses have described seeing her getting into a car. Again, you wouldn't think twice. Going along Stirling Highway, heading home, a couple of minutes drive, literally down in the neighbourhood, pretty well in the neighbourhood. And that that was the last we saw of her. So many witnesses saw her actually getting into a car describing Mm. her. And that was it. Yeah. And so many of those witnesses... um, could recall her so vividly or a woman matching Kira's description and, you know, even these young guys who who shouted out to her and said, hey, you'd be mad to hitchhike. Yeah. Um, well, that's right. I mean, Kira was a, quite a distinctive-looking um, young woman, uh, curly hair, very attractive, um, dressed in business attire, really, or, you know, a sort of formal skirt. And so uh, she would have stuck out a little bit, I think, um, even though Claremont would have been very busy, and she she must have done because there were, um, as you say, that various sightings of, of of her or someone who looked very much like her, and the final three um, with the by the so-called Burger Boys, three gents who'd been out for a for a good night out, had stopped at Hungry Jack's to get some food and was sitting on the bus stop on Stirling Highway and they saw someone very much like Kira walking on the other side of the road. They gestured to her, they called out to her, what are you doing, you're mad, you know, are you okay? Um, And Kira, uh, seemingly being Kira, gestured um, quite um, distinctively to to suggest she was fine. Um, And then the descriptions given in court were of, of her continuing to walk but then this white car station wagon sort of trailing alongside her quite slowly and then apparently pulling up just before the lights which is about 300 meters up the road um, and Kira seemingly leaning in interacting with the driver um, and then that that is the very last um, sighting um, before um, before her body was discovered um, less than three weeks later and still to me one of the most chilling moments when witnesses were giving evidence was when one of the witnesses had said to a colleague in the car um, oh you know what is she doing I wonder if she could be the next one to go. Well again um, you've got to know the mindset of these young people in an area where really you're given a false sense of security living in an area like that because they are only usually mixing with their colleagues and their school friends. Even today, some of the mothers from that area still can't grasp that it happened in their so-called trusted little area. Mm. It's a, it was a very village-type neighbourhood. Everyone trusted everybody. She would not have hesitated to have got into a car because of where she was. I think when she was overseas, you're on guard, coming back, you, she's going home, you're heading home, not a second thought. And, and I think this is what brought it home to everybody was how scary that was. But they are a very trusting um, lot of residents down there because mm-hmm. nothing had ever happened like this. Yes, It always happens somewhere else. And they're often blind to what happens outside the so-called golden triangle. And at what point did Kira's parents raise the alarm and become concerned that something had gone terribly wrong? Well, within hours, really, Nat. I mean, this was just before midnight. Um, By 3am, Kira's mum, Una, is aware that she's not back in the house um, where they were living. 
Um, but she said at the time and has repeated since Kira was 27 she'd just come back from overseas she didn't want to feel like the you know the the possessive or too possessive mum so she didn't really raise the alarm until basically daylight and that was when um, I think Dennis was uh, was going out that morning Um, he did actually go out but then um, Una realised that Kira wasn't there she wasn't with any of her friends or a- a- any um, attempts to get in touch with her had failed and so she rang Dennis and said I think something's seriously wrong Dennis came back to the house and and that that was when the Glennon's nightmare really really began and never ended no um, we have a news clip from a press conference which Dennis and Una gave shortly after Kira's disappearance I would not want any mother or any family to go through the pain and anguish and sheer heartbreak that Dennis, Denise and I are experiencing. We were just distraught. And, you know, we just need your help and your prayers. Um, we are um, a strong family and I don't cry easily. But Kira's alive. We believe that. Alison, you were there at that press conference that the Glennons gave. What was that like? Oh, that was... That was- terribly terribly emotional and for me it brought it to another level I wasn't there as a journalist covering it I was there as someone who could relate to them I knew them from the area my oldest son Jason was the same age as Kira had gone through law school with her they shared colleagues um, law, law school colleagues and lawyer friends and um, this was more of a personal um, thing for me and and I could relate to absolutely everything he was saying because knowing the young girls and, and also Mrs Glennon teaching most of the girls that my sons were going out within their circle and that was a it was just shocking horrible does it still break your heart now to to hear yes. that yes absolutely I think it would break anyone's yep. heart hearing the, the anguish in, in Una's voice there um and as we've said throughout the podcast, Dennis is bearing witness to pretty much every day of this trial and has borne witness to pretty much every day of the, of the uh, investigation since because uh, he is a he, he is an ex- incredibly staunch person. Um, I don't know Dennis personally, but I've seen enough of him to know that he is absolutely determined to see this through. And, um, and as you could hear from his voice then, he, he believed then um, that his daughter was alive that was obviously proved horribly wrong but he is he has never given up um, on her um, in any capacity that's right I mean you know they have tirelessly tirelessly worked to find answers to who may have taken their daughter um, and we have a clip then that just shows just how hard and how long and difficult this has been for them Kira's parents Dennis and Una Glennon poured a small fortune into providing additional resources for the macro task force. Well, absolutely. Um, Dennis Glennon was onto it, very, very proactive right from the start. He, he's a businessman, a CEO, and he he took it on like that, very, very forcefully, took on the authorities, asked the questions, how did this happen, why did it happen, uh, made sure that the lighting around Claremont was improved, was right in the face of everyone there and didn't let it go and he um, was very very um, proactive and influential in making Claremont a safer place he took on the council he didn't let anything slide he fiercely um, kept it in the in the public's eye and provided money where needed um, for them to keep going 
And I just I thought afterwards, all these years, and finally he's got some sort of um, resolution to see this trial come to head. Yeah. And I look at him, but I look at his face, and and it's just, oh, um, he is just distraught. He's fiercely, um, I think, fierce in his way that he wants it to be resolved. Uh, there was a resolve there that's continued all through these years. And he must still still feel so very protective over Kira. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we've we've as as the media covering the trial, we've had a little taste of that mm. um, in terms of um, uh, entreaties from the police um, in terms of some of some of the coverage, um, but. Uh, I mean, as I've said in previous episodes, we, we've tried to be as respectful as we possibly could to um, Dennis and Una and all the, the, the families of all, all three women um, in, in how we've covered it. Um, there are inevitably going to be some aspects of the coverage that is going to upset them. And that is the very nature of, of, a, of a murder trial. Um, but you cannot uh, uh, respect Dennis enough for the way he's conducted himself for 20, you know, four years, and then particularly uh, since Mr. Edwards' arrest, um, he's been there every uh, every, every, mm. every hearing, mm. every outcome, um, and continues to just um, fierce is a, is, a, is a really good word, I think, but not not in an angry way, but fierce in a in a in a determined, dogged, and um, you know, way that that. He has treated the whole, the ho- the whole investigation, um, including his relationship with the police, with the relationship with the media, um, and certainly it would now appear relationship to the to the um, the victims of the other families mm-hmm. because you can see um, how he interacts with them, and I, I think he's become sort of a de facto witness for all of them, mm-hmm. so he, they know he's at court every day, um, so maybe they don't have to be. I mean, it, it is actually unimaginable what they're going through and being in court every day and hearing the information that they're hearing, sometimes for the first time, and the only people that they may be able to find solace in are those that are going through the same thing. Absolutely. And I just think that um, right through the years, he might have almost given up hope that it's been so long and, and there have been so many false leads and false hopes. And right in the start, when, when the main policemen that he was involved with were all... Um, sidelined over another matter, um, he kept in there and kept going. It's just only the last few years he was reluctant to be interviewed because it was just enough, like every anniversary. But as they said, every time someone finds a body, they think, you know, what's Sarah Spears' family? It brings it all back to them because that brings back the whole, is this part of the the Claremont serial killing? So they're reminded of it all the time. And... um, we just hope now that there'll be some resolution for them. Yeah. And, you know, it is decades we're talking here, decades that they're waiting for answers. And, you know, I think back to 1997 when there were these videos which were um, the reenactment of Kira's last evening and the appeal to the public. Mm. And we've just got a little excerpt of that. Many people were in and around Claremont that night. You may have been in the area or driving along Stirling Highway towards the Bayview Terrace intersection. Did you notice Kira in her black skirt and white fitted top 
with her black jacket tied around her waist. I mean, this was desperate times. There was a serial killer on the loose and police were in overdrive. Mm. And overwhelmed, I think it's probably fair to say. Not not in, in terms of not knowing what they were doing, but in terms of the actual um, amount of information they were getting, I think, particularly after Kira's body was discovered, um, it was just it was it was just unimaginable the scale of of the 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 fear the the notoriety the case was getting the pressure from the media the pressure from the families the pressure from from their higher ups I'm sure to get something done get a result and it just it just it went on and on and on and has gone on and on and on for so long and as Ali said there were there were internal there was politicking within the police there was um, there was a bit of white anting going on there was leaks coming out sometimes when they shouldn't have and you know it, it, it just became such a, um, a, a snowball of of all different types of elements um, but at the heart of it all obviously was 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 someone that was killing women and yeah. of course they concentrated for so long on Lance Williams who you've, you've spoken about yeah. a lot and um, I think everybody sort of sat back thinking oh it was him and they all relaxed a little bit mm. and because there were no supposed killings after that that they thought yeah. they were on the right track. Although you did hear in the trial just how much work was being done by Macro. You know, we heard these extraordinary mm. um, figures mm. and, you know, 17,000 people had had their DNA tested. Yes. And this was information we had never heard before that had been kept top secret. Yeah. Yes. And uh, FBI involvement, um, shirt being sent over there, um, numerous DNA tests we found out. We found out here was being sent to Canberra and, and overseas as well. Um, so, you know, there was no doubt. I mean, you know, I don't think there was ever any real doubt that the police were trying everything they possibly could. I mean, there, there was no doubt about that. But the actual details of it um, have only emerged now nearly, um, you know, two decades on. Um, and, and and the details are s still to come, particularly about the FBI and the hairs, which we're going to be, um, be hearing about when the trial resumes next week. So, um, I mean, the, just the level of, of, of... Reviews and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Cold case reviews. Yeah, yeah. and all, all that was to come. There was, there was a review in 2004, another one in 2008, another one in 2014, and it just kept going and going and going. And as reporters, you were constantly asking the questions and looking for answers, but a lot of the times there just wasn't much information that was forthcoming. Yeah, and we've discussed that previously for operational reasons. The police were quite reluctant to um, to reveal actual details of what they were doing, but on on the other hand, you've got a you know you've got a community in in abs you know living in fear basically, mm. and wanting to know what's going on. Have we caught anyone? Are, you know, am I going to be next? Um, and and you know, I've got to say, and Dennis Glennon was driving uh, some of that. Um, coverage in terms of how he was determined that it wouldn't be forgotten um, and wouldn't just fade into the background as the um, as the months and the years went on. Yeah, and of course, despite their very best efforts, it was 19 days later when Kira's body was found in the northern suburbs. Yeah, and that was, um, I, you know, that was one of the darkest days in Western Australian policing history. I would think not not for anything they'd done wrong, but. Um, you know, and and detectives have been on the gone on the record since saying it was the phone call you absolutely didn't want to hear, but it did come, and we've heard um, so much about what happened on that day and the days afterwards, 
Um, the, the response was almost unprecedented in terms of numbers at the scene, forensic um, viewings at the post-mortem, more than a dozen people there, including FBI people. Um, and then everything that followed was was done at a, a at a rate and a speed and a sort of you know there was a sense of urgency about everything that was done then after then because it was now three young women that um, that police um, absolutely believed had been killed by the same person. And Kira's um, memorial service mm. um, was probably the most high profile service of a murder victim I've ever seen. It was akin to a state funeral. Mm-hmm. It literally, we had um, everybody there. We had all the media with their live telecast and their satellite dishes out there, filmed inside, outside, the whole of Iona, the school turned up, the choir, the Dennis spoke, mm-hmm. um, detectives were there, everybody went along it was just a, um, an amazing sight up there at St Mary's Cathedral and I, as I said it's akin to a state funeral mm. international coverage as well because uh, um, Kira's Irish roots mm. meant that the, the Irish press and then uh, on the back of that the, the UK tabloids were also very interested in the story not not so much because she was Irish but as, as well as the fact that she was the third victim of, of what appeared to be a serial killer in in, in seemingly sleepy old Perth. Yeah. And uh, Ali, I guess if you think back to that day, you know, it must have been incredibly sombre and quite heartbreaking for everybody because I think people would have all personally been so distraught about this. All all of the Iona students and her colleagues, the law school, lawyers, it was just totally crowded you could not move in the grounds of st mary's cathedral um but it was just so jam-packed as it it was i just remember the day that we were covering it we were covering it like um an event where we had like 10 to 20 tapes that we were going through it was just filmed non-stop inside and outside dennis glennon's speech um broadcast telecast live a very very emotional speech his faith and their faith has been very strong and I think kept them together. But it was an, an extraordinary day. In court, you heard about the actual details of the day that Kira's body was found. And that also was extraordinary because this was such an enormous crime scene. Yeah, huge. Um, because not so much of, as of Kira's remains sort of being spread out, they were actually very, very sort of tightly confined to to one very sort of sandy spot um, 40 kilometres north of Perth but the, the the area itself is just it was it's all sand it was all bush it was coastal um, and police needed to be aware of all those surroundings and 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 search them all or certainly look very carefully through them for any for any clues or any weapon that might have been dumped um, anything in the surrounds and so as we heard in the court the cordon around the, the area was massive, the security around the place was massive, the media presence was massive um, and the pressure was massive on the police um, on the forensic pathologists that turned up that they knew had the importance of this what the importance of what they were doing right at that very moment um, they could potentially find something that that could, you know, halt these killings, um, or if 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 they they messed up, they they might they might um, um, throw a huge spanner in the biggest works um, in W 
uh, WA police history. So, so yeah, it was it was a huge undertaking, and and as you say, it, it's taken twenty five years for us to really hear um, how huge. But but now we do know. And we did hear, as a, a result of the trial, we heard the likelihood of how Kira died and the circumstances surrounding that. Yeah, well, uh, we, we think um, because of the, the decomposition and, and uh, sort of the ele- the elements that got to Kira, but uh, we we do know there was a, there was a huge wound to the back of her neck and the side of her face, very very likely caused by a by a knife or a bladed instrument she was clothed unlike Jane was naked but so and and that and that bore its own clues and obviously we know that um, in the process of trying to fight for her life Kira fought so hard that um, one of her fingers two of her fingernails were torn off and underneath one of those is the it's the tiny speck of DNA which the prosecution say points point to um, point to Bradley Robert Edwards and this is um, all the information that has been coming out in court. This is the information that Dennis Glennon um, has had to sit through mm. and had to endure. Mm. And we just have a clip here from 2011, uh, which is Dennis speaking to ABC Radio National. When a murder like this occurs and you lose a child, it is just unnatural to bury your child. A number of things happen. One is the strength goes out of you. You just cannot get out of bed in the morning to go to work. You have no energy. The spring in your step is totally gone. There is no meaning to your life. And you're faced with the questions, well, if this can happen, why push on with life? And unfortunately, as he drives through, as he said to me just recently, that even driving to work, he's got to go through Clermont. He tries to avoid going another route, but it's the main highway that takes took him to work or take you takes you anywhere in towards Perth you've got to drive through that very area which he said is rem- he's reminded of every time he leaves the house mm-hmm. to go to go anywhere in- incredible um, grief that they've had to endure but it is very interesting and you've mentioned it in a previous podcast that um, Kira's mum Una actually in that period of time managed to find the strength to write a book Yes, she did. She dealt with it in a different way. We actually avoided speaking to her, but it was only when um, I met her socially that she mentioned that why had she been not approached by the journalist that it was Dennis, but we thought we were sparing her, but she actually felt important that she talk about it to get through it, and she did uh, write a book. Mm. It's called Kira's Gift. It took her 10 years, and, and the genesis of it was to try and find a way to express what she was going through. Um, she started jotting down some notes and making some writings and lots and lots of reading as well um, to try and find some understanding. And then throughout the two or three or four years after Kira's passing, um, um, it, it, it got it, Una has said it got harder and harder and harder um, to try and make some sense of it. And then... Through these 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 seemingly sort of disparate writings, um, it was suggested to her, well, why not bring those together um, in some sort of book? And then Una herself began to realise the book I wanted to read is the book I should actually write. I wanted a personal um, viewpoint on this uh, this depth of grief. 
she said a lot of the things that she read was were taken from a you know so a, from a slightly medical or scientific mm. she wanted a, a personal account to read that that might uh, um give her some feeling that she wasn't doing this alone that it wasn't something completely strange that no one else had experienced and so that is why she brought this book together as i say it's called kira's gift um i'd, I'd suggest anyone with any interest in the case or a, a, anyone who's going through any sort of grief that they're finding hard to um come to terms with to try and get a copy of it because it is beautifully written ethereal not 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 as heavy and as and as and as dark as you might think it would be even though there are dark passages and certainly dark places in it because of the subject matter but it's a it's 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 a it's a work of someone who's you can see is trying to bring themselves out of of of, of the darkest possible place you could possibly be and uh, and eventually i think she succeeds or she certainly says in the book that she finds a way anyway to 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 come to terms with to to bring an understanding to herself and um and in that hopefully bring some understanding to other people who might have um experienced as a, a similar uh, a similar trauma and being a school teacher too i think to communicate um those feelings and share those experiences would have been quite important yeah. to her. Yeah. We have some audio of Una reading a couple of passages from her book. I started writing about two years after Kira died, and it took ten years to complete. It is a very personal and revealing account of my journey through the shadow land of grief, of the rawness of the pain, of my attempt to come to terms with Kira's death, and my struggle to put meaning back in my life. Through the struggle and through the darkness, I found a new understanding of life and death, and a new self was born. The loss and the sorrow have molded the person I have become, and are an integral part in the new me. My focal point has shifted, and I now live out of a different space. Peace, wonder, joy, and gratitude are now the dominant attributes in my life. As Tim mentioned it. It really is an extraordinary book and Kate, our producer, has just handed me a copy and I'm just going to try and uh, read a couple of paragraphs to you if I can get through them. I'm filled with an insatiable longing and aching for Kira. I want to see her again, to hear her laughter, to inhale her fragrance. I want to know where she is and what she is doing. I want to reach out and touch her, to feel her body, but there is no one there only an empty space, a gaping hole. I now know how an amputee must feel when a limb is severed and the brain doesn't register its removal. It continues to send signals to the missing limb, but there is nothing there to respond. I've had an emotional amputation. That part of me was nourished by the bond of love between Kira and me is no longer nourished and I am left with an unrequited emotional craving. No other member of my family can satisfy that longing. It is an incredible, an incredible book, and I can barely even comprehend how she um, has managed to get through that and to write that and to put it into words that we can now read it and just feel that grief mm. and and just also the strength though of this family is extraordinary. 
Yeah, it's um, it really is unique. The book because uh, this story is unique, as we've we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and months and months. Um, but for Una to be able to find the words, um, let alone the strength to p- commit them to paper, is uh, is something that um, that we should all be um, we should all be grateful for, really, because uh, to to have the strength to be able to bear those feelings um, in yourself, and then um, but then to to be able to share them with with it publicly. Okay, so you you might notice a little uh, jump cut in the podcast there. We've just taken a quick breather because we're all parents in this room. Oh, now and I'm going to get upset too. <laughs> we're all parents in this room, and so it is um, very emotional, and we all do feel quite tightly invested in the case. And Ali, of course, it's very difficult for us um, at times to uh, be listening to these words. But we're going to try and press on now. Um, Moving forward, uh, we moved through the DNA part of the court case and as you were mentioning, Tim, uh, it was Kira's fingernails which were collected from the post-mortem that did move the case forward and lead to a breakthrough. Yeah. Um, So, (laughs) Kira's... The the physical evidence... uh, um, around Kira is the key evidence in the trial. I think I'm, I'm, I'm fair to say that, safe to say that. Um, and as I mentioned, the DNA under her fingernails is the is the what the ho- what the prosecution hope is the actual um, smoking gun, because it points directly to Mr. Edwards. And then there is fibre evidence also on her hair, in her hair, on her shirt, um, and on her skirt as well, um, which. When the prosecution try, uh, we'll we'll bring that all together um, in the next coming weeks, and then the closings. Um, it could well be that Kira's um, fight um, and her uh, refusal to um, let this person um, uh, at- attack her unhindered um, might well be what. Um, eventually brings um, brings this killer to justice. Obviously, the prosecution say that's Mr. Edwards. Mr. Edwards denies that it was him, um, but he doesn't deny it was his DNA. He just doesn't denies how it got there. Um, and it would be the well, we said we we talked about Dennis refusing to to let Kira be forgotten. Um, and if it was to be the case that the physical evidence on Kira were to prove um, the, 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 the most compelling evidence to, to bring this um, alleged killer to justice, then, um, then Dennis and Una and, and the Glennon family would, um, would, would have been entirely justified in, in, their, in their belief um, in their daughter and, um, and their refusal to, um, to, to let her go quietly into the night. Well, that takes us to where we are now. As you've said, we've moved past the DNA ev- evidence and when court resumes, we will be moving into the fibre ev- evidence. Tell us a little bit about what that's going to entail. Uh, it's going to be technical. It's going to be um, long. It's going to be um, sometimes difficult to hear because it involves um, Kira's hair, the entirety of her hair mass, which was removed during a post-mortem and what was found in it. 
on on it and also jane rimmers um here as well same thing and it, the basic allegation is that fibers that were found in in those two pieces of hair and on kira's shirt um link directly to um mr edwards's work um apparel um some some particular shorts and um trousers that Telstra employees wore at the time which employed a, a unique fabric that was made especially for them and also his car that he drove in 1995 and 96 um, sorry 96 and 97 um, a Holden Commodore VS series which um, again has unique fibers um, relating to some of the inserts of the seats and those fibers were also said to be found on on both Jane and Kira um, so we will hear experts, um, numerous experts from both sides, um, b- battle over the uh, those fibres, where they come from, and their integrity. Um, and then at the end of all that, that will be the conclusion of the physical evidence, and we will have a very, very um, good idea of, um, of 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 both sides' um, arguments and also the the, the strength of them. Um, um, and then. Finally, finally, we, we will get to hear from Mr. Edwards, um, not necessarily in person, but we will certainly hear his interview and what he had to say to police about the allegations against him when he was arrested in 2016. Ali, still a few months of the trial to go. How do you think everybody will hold up over the next couple of months? Well, we've held up for so long now. I think we really need to see through this trial. A lot of my friends are asking, how do I sit through it? I said, well, we really need to see where it's going and how it ends after waiting so many years. That's right. Well, court will return on March 23rd. In the meantime, stay tuned for more bonus episodes. We'll be with you then for Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.